You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. I like that Bamboo prayed around the timing piece because now we're getting to the place that I'm like, all right, God, what are you going to do with the timing of what is left to share, what days we have left, how is this all going to break down into sessions neatly? Because what's been really cool to see is so far, the stopping points have been really convenient where things stop. So where we stopped last time, we got all the way through Paul. And the next thing we're going to jump into is how mind shifts changed around the Gentiles. It's a perfect stopping point. I don't know what today's going to look like. We're going to finish with Acts today. I know that much. We're going to jump into Peter today. And who knows? We may even get through First and Second Peter. I don't think we will. I think some of that will go into tomorrow. So there's a lot we're going to cover. Uh, but I'm grateful that I'm not the one who has to control the timing. So like Bamboo prayed, I'm going to trust God to guide when I should speed up or slow down. Because again, what we know because I keep emphasizing it, is that this time is not about me teaching things. This is about us together welcoming in the Holy Spirit. So what are we going to do? We're going to welcome the Holy Spirit. So um, I'm just going to take a moment, give some silence to God. I'll pray. And again, if anything randomly pops in your mind, you're like, what in the world? Why did that verse come to my mind? Why did, why did that random word come to my mind? Just write it down. Worst case scenario, it was just some random thing. What do you got to lose? Best case scenario, spirit might be planting seeds. So let me pray. Father God, we just thank you that you are God and you are good. And we thank you for this time you've given us to sit in Acts, to sit in the epistles, and more importantly, to sit in your presence, to, to sit in a space where we can welcome in the spirit. So we acknowledge there's a lot of ways that we could navigate this time as speakers and students and just people. There's a lot of ways in which tiredness can hit us or other worries of the world could hit us. So we want to lay it all before you. Whatever we're bringing into this room, good or bad, we lay it before you. We want to offer ourselves and say, here we are. And we just want to be attentive. Because we've already heard the amazing things that the Spirit can do when we're willing to invite the Spirit in. Um, but more than that, we want to see you work. 
um, not, not for our glory and not for our benefit, but for your glory. That when we see you work, we can celebrate how amazing and how real you are. So we want to pause for a moment and just let you know how much we love you with our silence. We are listening. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We just, we're just so grateful right now before anything happens because we know that you are at work. Let's pray in holy and precious name. Amen. So we've already talked a lot about the Gentiles. And this is a pivotal piece of Acts, right? Because if it was up to the disciples, they would have been content with amassing their thousands at Pentecost and continuing to build thousands of Hebrew Jews, Hellenistic Jews, there'd be plenty of people, plenty of people to fill however many houses that they had and to spread out a little bit. They probably would have been content with this. Jesus, however, invited them to go into all the world. God, throughout Scripture, invited his people to be conduits to the whole world, to Gentiles to be able to come in to people that weren't Jewish, that couldn't trace themselves back to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we're going to spend a lot of time here because this is relevant to us, right? If you do not identify as Jewish, then this classification is where we fall. Um, before we jump in, a few things that I wanted to note. One, beyond just a demographic designation, what we can often see is the term Gentile almost have this derogatory sense to it, right? You're not one of the chosen people. You are something separate. We are set apart. You are something separate. Um, sometimes it could be synonymous with sinful because they're we saw a lot of pride beginning to build up, especially among the Pharisees. We are living right. We are doing right. But you people, mm -mm. and that created more and more of a barrier, right? But again, throughout scripture, we see this invitation. Um, I'm trying to decide if I want to share this piece. Um, yeah, I'll share this piece. I don't know much about this. I had not heard about it until I stumbled upon it. Uh, but when you get Jesus clearing the temple, and in Mark eleven seventeen, he says, uh, you know, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. From what I was reading is that specific court was set apart for Gentile worshipers. But what had started to happen is merchants, people setting up their tables had kind of infiltrated the space. In other words, taking up the space that was meant for it to be a house of prayer for all nations. So part of Jesus's anger could have come not just at how God was being dishonored, 
but how these people that God loved, that God wanted to invite in, were not being allowed space. We're being pushed out in a way. And so this is really important. This is really important. And yet, as important as it is, the disciples struggled. The apostles struggled. But let's see where it comes up. Y'all have already looked at all these things over the last nine or so weeks. But in Genesis 22, 22, we see, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. We see in Exodus 12, a foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat, uh, male may eat it. And what we're seeing here, and this is how John Gills puts it, for by this means, a Gentile would become a proselyte of righteousness and in all respects as an Israelite or son of Abraham, a native, a proper inhabitant of Canaan, enjoying all the privileges and immunities of such. So in other words, someone that was on the outside, a pathway, God had made a pathway in, right? So it wasn't an exclusive club. We see God's interaction with the Gentiles when he sent Jonah to Nineveh, right? With Hagar's story, with Rahab, with Ruth. And then we see it in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And we see it with Jesus' interactions with Gentiles, with the Canaanite woman's demon-possessed daughter, with Roman centurion's paralyzed servant, with a Samaritan who had, with Samaritans, you get the mixed Jewish and Gentile heritage, but we're still getting that Gentile piece into it. There was still that resistance, and that was not a barrier for Jesus. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So how, do, how does God feel about the Gentiles? He's, he says, I'm, my love is for the whole world. I have come so that all can know my love. But how do the Hebrew Jews feel? So earlier we saw that they were struggling with the Hellenistic Jews, right? With the, the whole widow situation. So if they're struggling there, how much more so with those who weren't Jewish, right? They had a lot of resistance. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, here's an interesting thing. Back in Matthew, when Jesus sent them out, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the reason I share this is because it's possible that with the mindsets that the disciples had about the Gentiles, that they took this and misconstrued what it really meant. Right? When Jesus said to them, don't, don't go among the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. That wasn't an for-all-time call. Let me put it this way. We talked about how Paul was trying to be attentive to the Spirit's leading on where he should go. And he kept wanting to go into Asia Minor. And the Spirit kept saying, nope, nope. Was that resistance the Spirit was making? The Spirit saying, never go into Asia Minor? <laughs> no, that wasn't what that was. For that specific movement, there is a reason that Paul needed to go to Macedonia. In the same way, Jesus had an intentionality here about why they needed to focus on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
was for that moment and for that time. But it's possible that the disciples took that to say, okay, yeah, so this is just for our people. This is just for us. But the whole world was always a part of the plan. The chosen people, however, were supposed to lead the way. Again, not this exclusive club, but God was trying to show his people what full life could look like to help them to understand how they could live in such a way that they could experience that fullness so that the whole world could see it. Nations that were struggling to survive could see this small nation without a king. How are they thriving? How are they conquering their enemies? This, they, I've heard about this God of theirs. What, maybe there's something to it, right? When they were living right <laughs> under God, when they were seeking God authentically, it caught the attention of the people around them. And they had to ask the questions of how are they thriving? We're the ones that should be thriving. How are they thriving? They were supposed to lead the way. But what do we find out happening instead? In Romans 2.24 says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's the complete opposite of what they were supposed to do. Their, their presence, their witness was supposed to bring glory to God's name, not blaspheming. So the apostles misunderstood what it meant to be set apart, why they were set apart, what that represented, and they misunderstood the, the former purity rules that existed, like not entering a Gentile home, not sharing a meal with them. They misunderstood these things. And so it created this barrier. As they began to find they had to spread beyond Jerusalem into spaces where it became more and more predominantly Gentile, it caused some tension. It caused some wrestling. It caused some struggling. And this is where Peter comes back into the story. Peter, again, has been set to be uh, the rock upon which the church would be built, but he still had these broken mindsets around what interaction with the Gentiles should look like. So it says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, so around noon, to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing Peter, who, by the way, really, really wanted to follow Jesus, really, really wanted to honor God, was willing to give his life, had some missteps, had some big missteps, but then was filled with the Spirit. Peter's filled with the Spirit. Is saying and doing amazing things. When we find him on this rooftop, he's not just some common guy that doesn't know anything about God. He's actually committed his life to serving God. And yet, when God is trying to point something out to him, it's not getting through. It's not getting through. And it's not entirely his fault. Because this is part of how we operate sometimes. 
We're trying to take this wisdom of God that's foolishness to man and trying to make sense of it in our minds, and oftentimes our human logic wins out. And we see this happen in Mark. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophecy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Whew. Jesus, Jesus did that mystery punch right there. Jesus hit hard. Because in their minds, they're thinking, I'm not wrong here, right? Like, this is our tradition. I mean, this is God honoring. And like, we can even say, like, actually, washing your hands is actually a really good idea. I mean, they're not wrong. It's not about whether they were right or wrong. It's about, as Jesus clearly put it, what's going on in their heart. Because what was going on in their heart is they were trying to establish their own traditions. They weren't trying to understand God's tradition as much as they were establishing and holding to the tradition of men. So Peter's up on this roof, and God's explicitly saying multiple times, look, I'm giving you permission here. I'm saying it's fine. And he's like, ah, 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 I've never done that before, and I won't because I'm a good Jewish guy who's a Christian now, but still holding the Jewish tradition, right? Like, he's trying to hold to this, and God has to push and push and push. We're going to come back to this when we talk about Peter to get more of what's going on within Peter, but this is something that we see is that no matter what God might be saying in Scripture, no matter what Jesus was saying, we can have this internal resistance because of whatever may already be established within us. In Mark, we see this. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Two things here. One, his disciples asked him about the parable. There's two things happening here. One, we know that Peter's in this now. So when Peter's on the roof, this interaction, he was there for it. He heard what Jesus is about to say, right? But two, Jesus is saying something pretty direct, and they're just thinking it's like this parable story, and maybe there's some other meaning to it. And Jesus is like, no, I'm being pretty straightforward here, right? You're getting caught up on the defilement. I'm talking about a heart issue. And then the second thing we see is, thus he declared all foods clean. That's a big deal. But again, Peter heard this statement from him. So he should have been able to recall this when a sheet was being lowered in a vision multiple times, saying, Kill and eat. I'm God. I'm telling you to kill and eat. You're good. No, I can't because I don't eat anything that's not clean. Right? 
how we understand things can create a barrier. Now, the good news is, the good news is, it's not about us. We keep coming back to this, right? This is why the Spirit's so important, because we do have our limitations. We do have our expectations. We do have our barriers. And the Spirit can break through. So how did the Spirit break through to Peter? Well, one, Spirit worked beyond Peter. Spirit spoke to the centurion Cornelius at Caesarea before this vision even happened. So the Spirit was already at work. Then the Spirit gave Peter a vision. Then we get this part. After the vision, it says, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius stood at the gate. Like, perfect timing. Perfect timing. You ever had those moments? Like, oh, that's more than a coincidence. This was one of those moments. Then the Spirit said to Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise up and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. So as Peter puts both of these things, At the very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them making no distinction. In other words, not looking at them and saying, ah, but they're Gentiles. <laughs> uh, like, no distinction, no hesitation. The Spirit explicitly told him this. And because the Spirit told him this, it allowed him to not get caught up in what would have been his gut reaction. And then when Peter goes and he speaks, while Peter was still saying these things, he wasn't even done his, his talk. He hadn't even gotten to like the final hit moment where it's like the altar call, right? Like he's not even maybe a three quarters through, like the Spirit's like, cool, it's not about you. Watch this. Boom. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So it wasn't Peter that was at work. It was the Spirit that was at work because the Spirit understood the role of Gentiles in this redemptive story. The Spirit understood the limitations Peter had in allowing this to happen, but still wanted to use Peter. Then Peter says this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This statement, truly I understand. This is the moment. It wasn't just I understand. Have you ever been talking to someone and trying to explain something to them? They're like, yeah, I know, I get it, I understand. And you're like, I know you don't though. Like I can tell you don't really understand what I'm saying. Right, you know what I'm talking about? Peter had heard enough about the role of Gentiles in God's redemptive plan, and Jesus loved the Gentiles. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I get it. I get it. But it wasn't until this moment that the Spirit hit and hit and hit and hit. And then he's before these people, and it's very clear, okay, the Spirit's up to something here. Like, this is crazy, all these things that have come together. It's not until this moment that he's like, truly, I get it now. <laughs> I understand. He didn't fully understand yet, by the way. <laughs> we'll come back to that as well. But this was an important moment. Something clicked that hadn't clicked no matter how many times he had heard it, no matter how many times he had heard Scripture. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. They had the same barriers to the Gentiles being able to hear the gospel and definitely to hear, receiving the Holy Spirit because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. What? Even on the Gentiles? For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It was beyond question at that point. All their broken theology fell apart in this moment where it's like, Nope, 
It is clear that the Spirit has accepted the Gentiles. It is clear that the Spirit has fallen on the Gentiles. They're speaking in tongues just like we did. And if we thought it was a big deal for us, then why would we discredit what's happening here? Like, we can't argue this. This is clearly God. Even if I don't understand it, even if I wouldn't have chosen, this is clearly God. So, all right, get the water. Let's do this. Now, we would like to think, as we come too often, that when we're seeking God and we're doing the right thing and then God breaks through to us, that everything works out fine. But as we've seen, there's often resistance. In this world, you will have trouble. Resistance. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Like, weren't you the Pharisee of Pharisees? Like, you know this. You know you're not supposed to do this. You know how wrong it is. You know how risky it is. What is wrong with you, Paul? He's getting criticism. Oh, Peter. He's getting criticism. I just mixed Paul and Peter. Let's write a verse after. So this is Peter. <laughs> right? Peter knows better, right? Peter should know better. They, they, they are so surprised that this pillar of the church would make such an awful mistake. And meanwhile, Peter's probably thinking, I didn't even choose this. <laughs> like, I was just taking a nap on the roof. <laughs> the Spirit's the one who did this. So how does he respond? We like to come back with purely theological arguments sometimes of these things. Peter shares a supernatural testimony. This is his response to them. He doesn't try to say, ah, but in Scripture it says this is this. There's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm saying in this moment, He's talking to people that also know the scripture pretty well and are convinced in their understanding. And so what the Spirit prompts Peter to share is just the story of what the Spirit did. I remember there's a friend of mine through high school and into college who wasn't a Christian. And I always felt this guilt because I was a Christian in high school and I felt this pressure of, oh man, am I supposed to like tell my friends about Jesus that don't know Jesus? And what if I don't tell them? And what am I doing? Am I a bad Christian? If I, and I wrestled and I wrestled. And when I would think about it, I was like, oh, how do I... How do I tell them about Jesus that, in a way that's not awkward? And like, what if I do talk about Jesus and then like we're not friends anymore? Oh, I'm wrestling, I'm wrestling. And, and there's this one friend in particular that God kept putting in my heart. And I personally just never figured out a way to talk about Jesus. And then something happened in my life that the story was so filled with God that I couldn't tell it without talking about God. And she wanted to hear the story. And I remember telling her, yeah, I'm happy to tell you the story. I'm just going to give you a heads up. Like, I can't tell the story without talking about God, so I'm about to talk about God a whole lot. And she's like, that's cool. And then I spent an hour talking about God in a very organic and real way to this person who for the however many years prior, I couldn't figure out a way to talk about God. When we talk about testimony, it's not just like, what's the story that I've written up about what God did in my life? God can work in such a powerful way that he gives us an opportunity to share who he is in a way that can break through just our thinking and our logic. It can give us a peace because, like I said, I can't tell this story without talking about God, so like this is an easy end for me. But when people are hearing a story, it's no longer just, this is what I believe or this is what I think. It's like, wow, but that happened to you. Even though I'm not sure how that happened to you, that's, it's clear that it was important to you, and so I'm I'm going to think about this differently. We see the power of story, too, when it comes to uh, David and Nathan, right? David's doing some pretty bad things. 
some pretty bad things. I don't know if anybody tried to talk to him, but if they had, they couldn't get through to him. And Nathan doesn't come to him with theological statements about what, how adultery is wrong, how allowing the murder of someone is wrong. Like, he could have done that. But what he did instead is he comes to him with a story of someone whose sheep is stolen from them. And it breaks through to David in a unique way because David can hear that because his defenses are down. And then that allows God to come and break him in a beautiful way. So in the same way, Peter shares this supernatural testimony of how I was taking a nap, the Spirit showed up, the Spirit did these things, this is the Spirit's at work, and was able to break through in a unique way. The other thing we see here is as Peter's sharing, there's this element of remembrance. We see this throughout Scripture as well, right? About the Ebenezers. How many times there are stones set up because God's like, I need you to remember this. I need this to be something that when your children's children see it, they will know what I did because otherwise you will forget. Well, I'm not going to forget water parting and us walking through. No, you're going to forget because humans are surprisingly forgetful, right? Remembrance is so important. And here's what Peter says. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us. So he's recalling that moment in Acts 2 when they were just waiting and praying and the Spirit fell. And he's seeing it happen. As it's happening to them, he is remembering this powerful moment, probably the most powerful moment in his life. He's seeing it happen. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he's remembering Jesus' words. Words that he didn't understand then. What does that, what does that mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? I, I don't know. Now he's remembering these things. It's all coming back. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? It's clear that the God train is moving. I'm not going to jump onto the tracks here. I'm getting on the train because God's clearly doing something. And when they heard these things, again, people who were criticizing him prior, who were arguing with him, who were debating him, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. In a little bit, we're going to talk about how we navigate disagreement, how we navigate that tension, how we find unity in that kind of a space. Spoiler alert, this is one of the answers, the Holy Spirit. Peter could have responded in a prideful way or in a fearful way, and it could have been a very different argument. This wasn't an argument. They wanted it to be an argument, and Peter's like, let me just tell you the story. And it was so filled with the Spirit that they were like, we have nothing to say to this other than let's give glory to God. Like, we thought the Gentiles weren't in this, but to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is a huge miracle around the core themes, by the way. Around the Spirit, around all the world, around unity both for the Gentiles and the Jews, right? This was huge. All right, so meanwhile, all, while all this is happening, there's a lot of people who hadn't heard about Peter's story. You know, they didn't have social media, so it wasn't like Peter, it's like, man, I was just napping on the roof, you won't believe what happened, right? Like, that wasn't happening. So news of this took a long time to spread. So this verse... We keep coming back to it because it's important. 
that while all this is happening, we're, we're seeing this kind of thing happen now. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. There were still people that had the same kind of mindsets as what Peter had up on that roof before the Spirit worked. They're still saying, we're going to talk to the Jews, but not to the Gentiles. However, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So the same thing that happened in Cornelius' house, we're beginning to see elements of that as well. They are willing to go and speak to those who are not of the Jewish people, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number turned to the Lord. There's such fruit that Jerusalem catches word of this, and so they send Barnabas to Antioch. And then Barnabas is so amazed by what's happening, he goes and finds Saul and gets him to come to Antioch. So this is becoming big. We talked about the hub shifting from Jerusalem to Antioch. This is when this is happening. There's such a, a tremendous work of God happening in Antioch that's catching everyone's attention. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, here's what we see. First, we got the stoning of Stephen, and that leads Greek-speaking Jewish people, uh, believers, to Antioch. Then there's believers from Cyprus and Cyrene that join. Barnabas gets sent to Antioch. Barnabas goes to Tarsus, finds Paul, brings him to Antioch. Paul and Barnabas go down and report what they've seen, this work of the Spirit, back in Jerusalem. And then Paul and Barnabas and John Mark return to Antioch. And then Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark are sent by Antioch to Cyprus on an overseas missions trip. All right? So over the course of a few years, around 35 AD, when Stephen's stoned, and over the course of 10 years, we're seeing these things happen. So there's a few recurring elements that we're seeing in this, right? One, we keep seeing that resistance from the Jews towards the Gentiles. Sometimes it's overt. Sometimes it's not overt. We're going to talk about a moment with Peter, and we talked about it yesterday, where it wasn't overt in Peter's mind that he was just pulling back, but Paul saw it. He knew the resistance that was in Peter's heart. There is tremendous fruit when the Gentiles are engaged. Each time this happens, like, it's a big deal. It's not just some small thing. Like, it's a big deal. Tremendous fruit that can't be ignored. And there is both rejoicing and criticism at the fruit. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So we read this yesterday, too. This is a pivotal moment where they're starting to realize, like, we got to name this. Like, this isn't just some casual, occasional thing where we reach out to a couple of Gentiles. No, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, if we want to see salvation to the ends of the earth, you can't neglect the Gentiles. There's a turning point here. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were uh, appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. 
But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So again, tremendous fruit. The Gentiles were rejoicing and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, a huge crowd came to believe, even with that resistance, even with the criticism, even with threats of persecution. The Spirit could not be stopped. And part of that was because Paul, Barnabas, and others, wherever they were, were willing to step in these spaces that they might not have chosen otherwise. And when they arrived at Antioch and gathered the church together, they declared, uh, declared all that God had done for them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So, there begins to be this understanding. Okay, the Gentiles are part of this. Okay, cool. Fine. I will concede that point. This isn't just for the Jewish people. Gentiles are part of it. Fine. But, we need to put some parameters around this. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Sorry. So, like, I know you think you're saved right now, but technically, until you get circumcised, you can't be so. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. There's something really cool about this, right? That there is this sense of understanding of unity that what could have been an argument right in that space, they realized, okay, we got, we got to, we got to take this to the leaders in Jerusalem, right? It could have just been a localized thing, but there is such an understanding that we are all connected and that there is some structure around this and some leadership that this question can't just be within us. Let's, let's take it all the way up to the top. Let's actually talk about this. And so this is where we get the Jerusalem Council. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this is the first part, right? This is the first point that's being made. All right, we all have this ground understanding of Jesus, of the Spirit, but they need to keep all the laws. Like they have to, they have to, right? They have to. And the other point was being made that, but do they? Like, do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to do all these things? It's becoming a stumbling block for a lot of them. So what do we do about this? And after there had been much debate, and I want to pause here. Picture the much debate moments that you've seen in your life. Social media, Thanksgiving dinner, just a group of friends, a group of not friends. <laughs> Debate can get really rough, really hefty. And oftentimes, debate can feel like it's not going anywhere. Everyone has their own mindsets, their own echo chambers, and nobody's, nobody's trying to hear the other side. Nobody's actually trying to find truth. Everyone's just trying to argue their own point. Debate can seem fruitless sometimes. And I wouldn't be surprised, because there were a bunch of humans in this council of Jerusalem, I wouldn't be surprised if that was happening. If there are people that are like, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, and they're arguing and arguing and arguing. But fortunately, it wasn't just humans in this council. The Spirit was there too. So the first way the Spirit works is through Peter. Brothers, 
You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And you remember, like, I didn't want the Gentiles to be a part of this. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to go and talk to them. I argue with God in my vision. You know this. Like, you know that in the early days, God made the decision that the Gentiles should be brought in. Again, the power of testimony here. They were arguing, arguing their theological points, and then Paul's like, Peter's like, now hold up, but just let's take it back. Remember what happened though? Like I hear what you're saying, but do you remember like how the spirit worked? Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Why are you trying to put this stumbling block before him that's making us stumble? It doesn't make sense. Like, I get what you're saying, but it doesn't make sense. It's about the grace of God. And what happens? The same thing we saw earlier. This assembly that had just been much debating, (laughs) arguing, shouting, storming out the room, coming back in, fired up because they just realized another point they could make. They fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonder God had done through them among the Gentiles. They had Peter's testimony, and now they're hearing the testimonies coming out of Antioch and beyond. And it's getting harder and harder to disagree with the work of the Spirit. Because even with our solid logic, when we see clear fruit of God at work, our our logic, it's harder and harder for that to stand up against God. We'll push that sometimes. We'll try to hold to our logic, but... The more we see God at work, the more we realize that our logic is not actually solid. Then you get James, the brother of Jesus. He's taking it back to, where does he take it? Amos. Taking it back to Amos. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. James is reminding us, look, all the way back in Amos, Gentiles have been part of the plan. I don't know why we keep on forgetting this. I don't know why we keep arguing about this. This has been written into the story from the start. The Gentiles are a part of the plan. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this? James makes a judgment. Therefore, we can keep on arguing, but my judgment is this, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So instead of putting all these parameters, like you have to keep the entirety of the law, which the people saying that weren't even able to do, instead of putting the parameters of you have to get circumcised, he's saying, look, let's pick a few of these things that make sense. Invite them to do that because it's actually going to protect their lives and allow full life for them, but not burden them with anything more. And what happens? Again, this group that had been arguing and arguing and arguing. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. How often does that happen in a big group that everyone's like, yeah, it seems good. Sometimes with small things, but with big things, big things that people have been arguing about. Why that happened? Because of the Spirit. The Spirit. So what can we learn about unity in the midst of disagreement? 
Disagreement will exist. It's going to exist. You're going to face disagreement. Maybe even this week. Maybe even today. It exists. We have to acknowledge that. Sometimes, sometimes we don't want to acknowledge that. We want to pretend like the default is everybody will agree and everything will be fine. So then when disagreement happens, it feels like an aberration and we don't know how to respond. But if we understand that disagreement will exist, then we're not going to be as caught off by it. We have to acknowledge that we will have gut responses. So in this case, like we see in chapter 15, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, there were people who felt so strongly that the Gentiles should be circumcised and follow the full law that they took it upon themselves to go out and basically give their own decrees. They weren't evil villains. They weren't trying to destroy the church. Their gut response is, I have to protect what's true and right, and I'm going to do it. We had these gut responses. The stronger we feel about something, the stronger our gut responses might be. We have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge it because a gut response isn't always a planned response. Right? Have you ever had a moment where you had a gut reaction and then later on you're like, if I had thought about it, I would have responded differently? <laughs> we have gut responses. We have to be willing to dialogue even if it's hard. Sometimes you're just done with the conversation. But there are spaces that God's inviting us to stay at the table. We have to recognize that human logic is limited. I mean, that, that, that is... An untrue statement for most of the world. For most of the world, human logic is solid. Logic is solid. Boom. What we realize is that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. <laughs> logic has a limit. There are things that are logical, then something supernatural happens that is the opposite of that logic. Right? How often in scripture have y'all read stories over the course of the several weeks and months now that's like, what happened was not logical. Human logic is limited. The spirit is not, though. The spirit is not limited. And the spirit can give us testimonies of his power, can give us remembrance, and can give us the words to say. So where we're in this spot where there's this tension, this disagreement, and we know God's calling us to unity, instead of relying on our logic, we can invite the spirit to give us testimony, to get, invite the spirit to remind us of what we need to be reminded of, to convict us of what we need to be convicted of, to give us the words to say when we're floundering with our words. The Spirit can provide this for us. We can become of one accord. We don't actually believe this most of the time. We're never going to agree. Uh, we're, our, our, our understanding of this point is so different. We're just never going to be on the same side on this. We're just never going to. You're right. Like, we do this with people. We, we, we make a hard line and write some people off. But the reality is if God's calling for unity... And when I'm saying these things, I'm primarily thinking of the body of believers, right? There may be some interactions with people that it's not a body of believer relationship that it might be hard to have one accord. That's a whole other conversation. That's next week. I'll come back. We'll talk. No. Uh, but within the body of Christ, we've been called to be one body. We've been called to unity, which means we can become of one accord. Remember, it seemed good to us having come to one accord. We were just arguing, and somehow through the Spirit, here we are at one accord. So we got to figure out who's calling the shots and are we listening? When we're in the midst of these disagreements, who's calling the shots? Is it someone that we're holding in leadership? Is it bamboo? Is it our own minds? Is it our own desire? Is it our own wills? 
Is it the Spirit? And if it's, if it's the Spirit, are we listening? Peter didn't have to listen to the Spirit. He didn't, maybe didn't want to when it really pressed him on his theology being off. But he did, and as a result, everything changed. When they were in this Jerusalem council, it wasn't just a group of people arguing about what was theologically true. It was a group of people arguing about what was theologically true and also saying, but what is the Spirit saying? I know what I think, but what is the Spirit saying? Which allowed them by 15 verse 28 to say, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They were so attentive to the Holy Spirit that first it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. This, where we've landed, we, we have a clear sense that this is good for the Holy Spirit. And then second, and also we're good with it, right? That was a bonus, by the way. It could have just said, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit. We don't like it, but the Holy Spirit says, yes, so we're going this direction. That was a bonus, that there is this one accord, there is this peace that the Spirit provided for them. So again, we're seeing these themes. The Spirit, all the world, unity, all throughout this. We got to remember that in our disagreements, those themes can exist, that the Spirit can exist in our disagreements, the Spirit can work, that those disagreements, God may actually use it to spread us beyond our current spheres, and that unity can exist. Peace can exist amidst disagreement. Sometimes we don't believe that. But this is what we see by the end of this Jerusalem council that could have gotten, gone really bad, could have gone really bad. They were in one accord. There was a peace. Peace is possible in disagreement. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is the Gentiles responding, the Gentile believers. They could have responded in a lot of ways. They could have said, oh, but you're still going to make us do this. We can't do this. Like They could have looked at those parameters. No, they rejoiced. They felt a peace. They felt an excitement because it could have gone really bad for them as well. This is a hard one. It may cost us something. But we are called to count the cost and to consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Sometimes when we're in disagreement, the real goal within our hearts is to not lose the disagreement. We don't, maybe we don't have to be the victor and destroy our enemy, but we definitely don't want to lose. Sometimes our goal is to not have to change how we understand something. And sometimes in disagreement, there's going to be a cost in order to find that unity and peace. Because what we're invited to is to die to all else but God, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But everything is a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So anything that it does cost us, it's actually fine. <laughs> because what we gain is far worth it. So, we have just gone through Acts, right? And so much has happened. So much has happened. Here we are. I'm going to give you two of these things. That way, if you like timelines going this way, where it's just listing in the dates, cool. But if you're like, oh, I like a visual, boom, you got that. And if you're like, that's too small for me to read, that's okay. I think Bamboo is going to give you all the slides later. But a lot has happened in this book. It's a big book, 28 chapters, but a lot has happened. And remember where we started 
In fact, let me see if this is, yeah. Uh, uh, we started with this group that had no idea what was ahead. All they knew is that this guy that they had been following Jesus was actually more than they realized and was inviting them to more than they could imagine. And they were willing to stay at the table. They were willing to wait. They were willing to invite the Spirit, even though they didn't know what the Spirit might do. And let me pause to say here, that's sometimes our hesitation, like when we're doing these prayers before our sessions of inviting the Holy Spirit, because what if the Holy Spirit makes me do something weird? <laughs> right? What if the Holy Spirit like does something crazy and, or embarrassing, or what if, what if, what if? They didn't know what they were getting into, but they were willing to. And it, had, it cost them. It cost them a lot. It cost them their plans. It cost them their way of life. It cost them their safety. It cost them their theology. But what came out of that was far abundantly more. They became this sense of family that they never could have imagined. That became a global family. They had this access to provision and resources that they could never have amassed with the most well-paying role. <laughs> they had this experience of power that was supernatural. Paul dropped a handkerchief and the dude picked it up and his legs were healed, right? Like mind-blowing stuff. So whatever their fears were, whatever the risks were, man, what came out of it was abundantly more. So what does that mean for us? The same thing, same thing. We are promised that God, who is able to do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine, is doing so through the spirit that's at work within us already. So what could the disciples have been asking for or imagining? I don't know, we can speculate. Again, maybe it's to have a whole bunch of people at a one hub church in Jerusalem and keep on te teaching about Jesus and maybe doing some of the miracles that he was doing. Jesus tried to tell them, you're actually going to do a lot more than I did. I'm like, don't, don't stifle what's about to happen here. Because, again, what did the Spirit do? Way abundantly more. They were healing. People were raised from the dead. Thousands came. People that they never would have pursued came. Sometimes it's people that they didn't even know they would pass by, like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. He's just on a stroll. God brought that Ethiopian eunuch who was reading Scripture to Philip, like, so many things that they were like, wow, this is beyond coincidence. This is beyond amazing. To the point where they're able to be willing to die and to have peace with that. And what does it take for us to be at that kind of a place that we are okay with death? It has to be something amazing and powerful. And that's what they experienced. What they came to understand about God, Jesus, and the Spirit was so mind-blowingly amazing that they were content with even martyrdom. Acts also means that we can be well-meaning and God-seeking and still misaligned. This is why we closed out with the Gentile story. Peter did amazing things. So many of the disciples and apostles did amazing things. They were well-meaning. They were God-seeking. And yet many of them were misaligned. Filled with the Holy Spirit, but still saying, mm, but I don't know, I don't know if the Gentiles are saved, though. Like, even though I, I'm sure I, I heard you said that the spirit fell on them, but they're not circumcised, so, right? Like, they're misaligned. We can be in the same place. But like we see here, misalignment wasn't disqualifying. What would have been disqualifying is if Peter said to God in the spirit, 
No. And we've seen Peter do this, right? <laughs> We're going to come back to this where Peter rebuked Jesus. And no, absolutely not. The good news is that the Spirit already knows that we can get misaligned because we're using our human logic. We're using our human desires. We're using our human thinking. But the Spirit can break through. The Spirit broke through to the first church, broke through their broken theology, and brought them to a place of full life. It can do the same for us. We've been promised a helper. The same helper that we're seeing in Acts. The same stories that we might read and be like, wow, that was amazing. That's been promised to us. It's been promised to us. This isn't some cool story from the past that we're like lamenting that it's done. No, like the helper has been promised to us. Just like it was for the disciples, seeking the Spirit, living for God, might look very different than what we expect. Because a lot of times for what we expect is about numbers, it's about reputation, it's about safety. Who do we what churches do we really celebrate? The big ones. The bigger they are. And if it's a small church, it's like 10 people. <laughs> Reputation. Oh, it's the, that, you know that famous pastor? You know that famous speaker? Like, we'll celebrate that. We also celebrate safety. <laughs> we, we don't want to get hurt. We don't want to get killed. Like, so our understanding of, our expectations are based around those kind of things. But what we see instead is, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, to go out beyond our comfort zones, to go out beyond our scope, to go beyond our spheres, to people that we might not have chosen, to die to self, to serve. It's not about numbers. It's not about reputation. It's not about safety. It's about the spirit. It's about God being glorified and honored. And it's bigger than us. The things that happened to each of the disciples, the apostles, the people that were following the seven, their names may have been mentioned, but it's not about them and their lives. God worked and transformed them, but there is fruit beyond it. What God is doing with you all within this room this week, this month, this DBS, like is going to be for you in some ways, but it may actually be bigger than you. There may be something that God is planting inside of you right now that's for someone else. You may never even know about it until you get to eternity. Right? This is bigger than us. It's not just about our spiritual maturity. God is doing something abundantly more. The Spirit is real and at work. The good news is for all and to all the world, and the invitation is to be a unified church. So we're kind of done with Acts, kind of, because we haven't forgotten about Peter. I didn't talk about Peter a whole lot. I talked about him, but not a whole lot, not as much as he shows up because I want to bring that into the first and second Peter conversations. So we're going to talk about Peter. We're going to talk about the epistles, those letters. It's a very different type of writing than what we've seen. There's something different, right? Uh, it's, it's like imagine writing to a friend, like an update letter. Some of y'all have been writing some update letters. Or if you're writing to a friend to encourage them or to confront them, sometimes you're like, oh, I got to tell somebody something hard and I don't, I can't say it to their face. So, hey, I love you so much, but I just, I guess it's more like this. <laughs> more like this, right? Think about that. This is what we're talking about when we think about the epistles, right? They're, they're relational. They're intimate. They're not just informational. And it's not a textbook that Paul wrote and sent out to them. Study this. And, no, he's writing to people he knows and loves to encourage them, to exhort them, to challenge them, to inspire them. 
So there's something really beautiful about that type of literature within Scripture, something unique about that. 